Hello, and welcome back to Energy Futures, the podcast where we explore different perspectives on the future of energy. Today, we're with Rishi Jain, Managing Director of Cross River Infrastructure Partners, and we're looking at the flow of capital for future energy projects. Hey, Rishi, thank you so much for joining us today. We are so excited to have you on Energy Futures to talk about everything that you've been doing for years as it relates to the future of energy and energy finance. So I thought I'd start for a sec and just ask you about your background and what got you into this in the first place. Sure. I'm glad to be here, Catherine, and uh, thank you for the invitation. So my background was on the investment side for many years and focused a lot around energy and natural resources, but that also included agriculture and transportation and broadly speaking, industrials, all of which is really a massive sort of interconnection of energy use, which really fuels civilization. When I joined Cross River and my partner and I launched Cross River Infrastructure Partners, it was really born out of the recognition that there was a very large gap in the knowledge base of really everything energy transition-wise When you move outside of solar and wind, uh, you end up having really a lack of capital, meaning third-party financing, infrastructure financing, but you have a tremendous level of what I'll call 21st century technologies that are actually able to um, make meaningful changes in the energy system. But but in order for these solutions to be deployable, you, you need the structures around them that allow for third party capital, infrastructure capital to come in. Infrastructure capital is notoriously risk-averse. I mean, so risk-averse that the initial infrastructure investors would sit there and say, well, I'll only invest in this project if if you can show me 10 or more nearly identical projects that have been running for years and, you know, there's no tech risk. So they have a hard time getting their heads around 21st century technologies that are now ready for deployment for commercialization. At the same time, we have had massive amounts of capital raised, and certainly the sheer number of dollars floating around the world right now is extraordinary, and it needs a home. You know, Rishi, I said this to you before, but you've been involved in the world of future energy financing since well before it was cool. As you've been looking at all of these things, to start with a really softball question, what do you think the future of energy really looks like from a capital perspective? I think that broadly speaking, especially, and I I can't really explain why this has happened, but over the last 18 months from the pandemic to now, this sort of realization really across industries and across the world that that the energy mix has to transition um, has been sort of incredible, fantastic, because we're obviously have been working on this for a number of years and for everybody to globally suddenly really commit to to this is sort of incredible to see. But this is even coming from from sectors that have traditionally been very, very sort of call it denialist about needing to change anything, about there being any issue about the future. And so when you think about the future of energy transition, everything is now on the table because there is no one solution that is going to decarbonize the world's energy system. And, and it would be great if there was, but here's an example. 80% of the world's energy is consumed as a molecule and electrons 
which is 20% of the world's power uh, consumption, notoriously difficult to move around. And so trying to decarbonize that 80%, let alone the 20% of the electrons that are being generated from coal is extraordinary and means that that the future of energy transition is going to require trillions of concerted effort, and it is going to be a multi-decade process. Now, the good thing is that it has really started. and You're seeing that across geographies, across regulatory zones, um, and the imperative and the urgency has picked up just in such a breathtaking way in the last 18 months. So I suppose a silver lining of, of the chaos of the last little while. Good to see silver linings in the pandemic, and this is a big one. So I agree with you there. I think there's there's broad recognition now that hasn't been as broad before. It's moving with, with some momentum, which is amazing. But even with that, there's you know a million different people probably have 10 million different views on how we should move forward and what we should do. What is one thing you think people actually agree on right now as it comes to the path forward for energy? Well, I think that everyone fundamentally, not everyone, but I think the, now the majority of policymakers, industry participants, et cetera, are, are at least acknowledging that a change has to happen. Where everyone disagrees is on what that change is. And I, and I think that is a natural corollary to the next comment that the, the part that is sort of a little bit frustrating in the conversations and the dialogues we're having, there, there's a policy extremist view that is really sort of damaging to actual fundamental change. One of those views, for instance, is the electrify everything crowd who sits there and says, no, we shouldn't have anything other than power coming from solar and wind. It means if you're, if you're taking that policy approach, one, you are hobbling our actual ability to move away from a carbon-based economy. Two, it means you don't understand how an electron even shows up in your socket to plug into, right? Or, or how the wider economy actually functions currently. As I mentioned, 20% of power is consumed as an electron. In fact, I don't think any new transmission has been laid in the US this century. Nobody wants to allow high voltage transmission coming through their backyards. If you can move energy as a molecule, for instance, in hydrogen, which doesn't burn forest to the ground, for which there is decades of experience moving and, and for which there is an existing transcontinental pipeline network, which is how you, we all sort of get our power anyway, you can transition the economy in a, in a, in a way that doesn't completely collapse it. It sort of all goes in together to say that everyone agrees that something has to be done. The divergence, the step after is, well, what do we do? Becomes almost this ridiculous conversation of, of facts versus policy prescriptions that don't have any basis in reality. Rishi, are you telling me that people underestimate how complicated energy is? Yeah, <laughs> yes. I, <laughs> wildly underestimate how complicated the economy is. And yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Saying that tongue in cheek. <laughs> it's amazing to hear you talk about though, because it's true. We wish that we could just flip the switch and see the whole world move to the future of energy. But, you know, as it turns out, there's a lot of energy that's used every day immediately that can't just pause until we have a new thing for it to plug into or whatever. And you can't just tell everybody to wait. You have to 
keep doing what you're doing, figure out what's next, and then figure out how you elegantly transition without it putting the world you know, under just by making the switch. Yeah, that's right. I'll give you an example of a bus fleet. And we've done a, a lot of work around fleet transition because hydrogen, you know, the hydrogen economy is firmly upon us. And whether that is for direct use in a fuel cell, whether that's used as a, in ammonia or methanol and directly combusted, or used as just an energy carrier uh, for the hydrogen, which is just much easier in methanol or ammonia forms. Um, a bus fleet, if you've got more than 50 vehicles in a depot that there, you're going to need 10 to 15 megawatts of power to charge those buses. And probably a lot of them are going to be charging around the same time because everyone is awake and asleep around the same time, broadly speaking. Those buses have to be on the road while you're awake. And so this works if you've got three or four buses and you're saying, okay, well, we're going to trial this. But you move to 50 buses how are you going to lay 10 or 12 megawatts of transmission into this bus depot, most of which are somewhere in an urban area? Can you imagine trying to do that in New York or San Francisco? Everyone will stop you, right? They'll say, not in our backyard, not in our, you're going to ruin our neighborhood, you're going to burn out all of the rest of our lines, et cetera, et cetera. And then you have to get the actual electrons there. And then the utilities end up charging you uh, a demand charges. As you know, when you look at your power bill, you have a, a base charge and then you have a demand charge. And, and the way the utility pricing is in this country is they'll take your maximum usage in a day, even if it's for a few minutes, and charge you for that. And say, here's what your demand charge was for all of it. The number of transit authorities who have gone with more electric buses have had their utility bills blown out. And, and you know they don't have massive budgets to begin with. So they're, they're all pretty much operating on a knife's edge anyway when it comes to, to profitability of a transit system. It's, it's not a viable situation. So that's really what I, I think about when, it, when you think about the complexity, you know, just a, a simple bus depot of 50, 100 buses. You can't just, hey, just plug it in. Electrons flow in, into your wall the same way that water does. There has to be someone putting electrons in on the other side and the grid has to be balanced. So if you suck out all the electrons, those electrons are gonna be taken from everywhere else. It's like in your own house, if everyone turns the water on simultaneously or all your neighborhood times turns the water on simultaneously, your water pressure disappears. It's because there's a central pumping station keeping pressure in the pipes so that you have the convenience of turning on a tap when you need it and the water comes out. It doesn't just magically do that. And by the way, I learned this when <laughs> Sandy hit and I was like, oh my God, the toilet's not... <laughs> That's <laughs> not flushing. Oh, water that's not a great seven, time to 17, learn that. Yeah, 17 <laughs> stories up. I was like, well, I am not staying here. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that stuff, is, there's, no, there's no magic behind any of this. It doesn't just appear. And so the, the policymakers, the evangelists, if you will, who say there's only one way to do this, it, it's deeply damaging to the world when we have to take all options to move off of a carbon-based economy. I'll give you another example. You have a lot of people in the hydrogen world that are now saying, okay, well, we don't endorse this concept of blue hydrogen. Okay? And there's the, the current sort of vernacular is that blue is when you're using you know, natural gas most likely and, and the natural gas you are reforming into hydrogen by breaking apart the, the hydrogen and carbon molecule and then moving it uh, and then sequestering the CO2. 
right? So they sit there and they say, well, we don't endorse this. We only endorse green, which is ostensibly from sources that are uh, renewable. So solar, wind, and whatever. Now, there are two parts of this conversation. So if we focus on blue, one, I think the, the academics are actually starting to realize that colors are not useful in, in a practical sense. What matters is carbon intensity. So if you create a regulatory scheme that allows for a carbon intensity score, which eliminates this whole concept of color, but sort of green or renewable electrolysis, renewable power fueled, uh, powered electrolysis is still a few years away from prime time. And the, 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 the technology that is there today, it's not ready for world scale production at all. It's not. But blue is, right, where you are sequestering the carbon in geologic storage deep underground permanently, you can transition an economy away from diesel. And I think everyone broadly agrees you have to get off diesel and bunker fuel. And bunker fuel is what the shipping uses, which is the absolute bottom of the barrel, dregs of the what's left when all of the oil refining is done and you've taken Literally. off the, light, the yeah. lighter product. And yet that's what all the ships are using in the world that are taking your Amazon orders from China, from the factories who are burning coal, bringing them over here. And just as an aside, 90% of the world's solar panels are manufactured in China, which is still broadly speaking, using coal as the power source. So they're not, ugh, so there's this problem because you're saying, well, we'll just do solar everything. And you're like, okay, well, it's all manufactured in China. So not only does China have a, a, an effective monopoly on your supply, which means they're the world's first electro state versus a petro state before, um, they can turn off your supply but they're using coal to make the silicon. And by the way, the solar panels aren't recyclable. So they are ending up in landfill when you go to the, a cheaper next generation of solar because the prices keep coming down so fast. All of that stuff is ending up in landfill. Okay, well, you've got real waste streams here. So you can't just say, hey, this is green. We have no problem. It means you don't understand how solar panels are made and the, the value chain that, that happens. And you need to consider these things. Now, when you come to green, the concept of green hydrogen as an example. Okay. There is a certain crowd that says, no, only solar and wind can work. Okay. Well, those people who are saying that probably are in the solar and wind industry. And so they're trying to create regulatory um, moats that other people can't get across. But nuclear is the actual original form of zero carbon power, right? The amount of nuclear waste that's in the, in, that the U.S. has produced, period, fits on a football field, about 10 feet tall. That's it. And so when you're talking about, well, this is a real problem, it's not really a real problem. And technologies are being developed to actually consume the waste fuel. And when you look at fourth generation small modular reactors, their fuel cycles are measured in decades, not in months and weeks and days, like the current fleets around you know, North America. So you don't have this fuel waste cycle in anywhere near the magnitude, but it's 24-7 baseload power with heat, whereas solar and wind do not produce any heat, and they're not 24-7. And, and so here's where the, the pragmatism comes in. All of these solutions need to be part of this. So maybe if we just calm down and accept that a, a multiple solutions are going to be needed for the world, then, then we actually may be able to accomplish this. So if we think about needing to move to a lower carbon future as the overarching goal, We've talked about multi-technology solutions. We've talked about a regulatory infrastructure need. We've talked about 
just needing to see the world differently in terms of how energy is generated. Where do you think someone starts in solving, I'm using air quotes, solving the energy equation for the future? What uh, yeah, I'm, glad, I'm glad you told me there were air quotes there. That was, uh, <laughs> helps, helps frame this. <laughs> um, where does one start? I think what the way, the way that this starts is by taking a technology neutral approach focused on carbon intensity rather than on some sort of prescription about how this must be done. So if you take a risk-informed approach that is focused on principles-based rather than prescription, you actually can get a lot of new innovation accelerated across a whole bunch of different channels for carbon transition. And, and carbon transition has to include not just carbon dioxide, but you know, methane leaks, it has to include nitrous oxide emissions, which are both very potent, far more potent than CO2. And, and so any regulatory framework needs to account for these things in a, car, a CO2 equivalent form, but that's what it needs to be. And I'll, I'll give you an example. The, the Canadian and American regulatory systems for new nuclear plants is very different. And you wouldn't think that, but it is. If you want to bring on fourth generation nuclear, the US regulator is entirely prescriptive. And so in their prescription, means that the only technologies that can get permitted is the sort of reactors that you had from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. If you were trying to, to get a new form, even if these are old technologies and have been running for a long time, but the regulatory system has been written in a way that only one technology effectively can be permitted, which is ridiculous. The Canadian system, as I've learned, is actually a risk-informed approach. And so they, they really take more of a principle-based approach. And it means that there are 10 different technologies right now or more going through vendor design review processes with the Canadian nuclear regulator. Um, and that's, that's amazing. And in fact, if all regulators were, were risk-informed rather than prescriptive, one, you'd have a hell of a lot less bureaucracy and things could get done. But two, you would have a lot more solutions and innovation happening that would then create more jobs and and create solutions you couldn't even think of right now, but that could really affect the, the pace of our transition. As long as people take an approach that is risk-based, then, then we can actually do this. I love that approach, starting with the actual input of risk-based rather than saying, you know what we all need? We all need whatever. So right. it's pragmatic. And as you said, it lends itself to the kind of innovation that you can't even think about yet. So right enable those really smart people to solve these really big problems. Yeah, so, that's right. Rishi, my last question for you is more just looking back on your, your time in this space. What's been the biggest change that you've seen in your career to date? Well, I think I've, I've alluded to, or at least mentioned this earlier. The, the reality is, is that the pandemic has triggered a global move towards sustainability across industries that we're working with, that's from you know the meat packers to utilities to you name it, across the board, firms that you would never have thought or who have resisted change or where change is, a, is really not part of their culture are making huge moves and big investments to actually move the way they do business into a sustainable state. And so this is all happening at a really staggering pace, especially over the last 18 months. Fundamentally, 
this is the biggest change. And I will say it's my firm belief that the, the story of the 21st century is going to be the transition of the world's economy to a hydrogen-based economy from hydrocarbon-based. Uh, and, and again, that's because 80% of the world's power is consumed as a molecule. It is such a staggeringly large level of investment that needs to be made. I'll give you an example, which is something we're working on directly. Currently, 180 million tons of ammonia is, is produced in the world. And about 10% of it, or let's call it 20 million tons of it, are, are actually traded. So that means 160 million tons are consumed as fertilizer in the areas that they're being produced. Ammonia, which is NH3, does not have a carbon molecule attached to it, but it has a, a fairly high energy density as a hydrogen carrier. And it can be combusted and there's no carbon emission attached to it. So it's got a lower energy density than gasoline or diesel. But if you're talking about a no carbon solution, ammonia is the closest thing to our current habits that already has a very established supply chain globally in the world. You can use regular LPG carriers, that's liquefied petroleum gas carriers, and there are terminals everywhere around the world. Most major ports are ammonia enabled already. They can store ammonia. But the amount of ammonia that would be needed, if you were to transition the world shipping to ammonia, you would need 660 million tons a year of at today's shipping, not, not even the 3x forecast growth that is, is coming by 2050. So let's, let's put that in perspective. A... Um, 180 million tons currently exists. It's taken us 100, and 100 to 130 years to build out that level of production. So for just marine, let alone aviation, let alone rail, let alone anything else, just for marine usage, you would need a trebling of the amount of ammonia that you would have to produce. And that would be on top of the amount of ammonia being used for agricultural purposes. Right? So you're talking about trillions of investment that is coming. And actually, this is the, the other silver lining of, of the pandemic. There are so many dollars flying around and so much money has been raised by infrastructure and investment firms looking for returns. And there are simply not enough projects. And so they're, they're almost being forced higher out in, in what would be perceived risk spectrum. That is a good thing. It's actually triggering the ability for non-traditional, which is non-solar and wind infrastructure projects, people are seriously moving forward in diligence and term sheets and getting stuff done in ways that wouldn't have happened even in January of last year. You know what? We'll take it. You needed some sort of an accelerant and it's here. It's fascinating yep. to think about. Well, that's right. Well, Rishi, thank you so much. This has been amazing. I cannot wait to hear back from you about how these predictions come to life. I think one of the things that I love the most about our conversation is the real reinforcement that we're moving fast, change is happening now, and it's going to take all of these different things to come together and make this work. There's not, there's not one bet to make on the future of energy. So it's pretty exciting. Yeah, I think that's right. It was a pleasure to speak with you today. Thank you, Catherine. Thank you.